We continue our journey in John. After we just started last week, we pick up with John 1, 19 to 34. John the Baptist and Jesus' baptism is what we're going to cover this morning because that's what the text dictates. So let's go ahead and jump in. John chapter 1, verse 18. You can read along. It's Oh, let's not. Let's back up and go to last week because it introduced this. John chapter 1, verse 6 through 8. We'll look at some more verses in a minute that introduce it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And we already have an idea of what this is. John the Baptist is setting the stage for Jesus. Jesus is going to come and he's going to minister to a lot of people, including us today. But the cool thing, when you think about John the Baptist and what he did in setting the stage for Jesus, you might toss it around in your mind that it's possible that he also could use you for setting the stage for Jesus to do ministry with others. Let's read a little bit further. Actually, let's look at a picture of John the Baptist. If I'd stick with my notes, I would, I would do better. So this is a, just a cartoon image. There's been a lot of images of John the Baptist, and I'm amused by some of them. A friend of mine who was determined to turn me into a golfer, it never worked, uh, he was a pilot in the Air Force and retired, and then became a pilot for um, a big company, and then retired from them, and then he golfed. And he was raised Roman Catholic, and if you ever hear me talk about the Roman Catholic Church, I hope that you at least walk away understanding that I have a lot of admiration and respect for the Roman Catholic Church. Anyway, he was raised to believe that baptism was not immersion, it was sprinkling, which is not in the New Testament. But his argument to me, he thought he had the best argument one day. He came to me, we're good friends, so he just knew he had it. He brought his mother's Bible, he opened it up, and it had a picture of John the Baptist and Jesus standing in the Jordan River up to their waists with John the Baptist sprinkling Jesus. And this painting, he said, proved, you see, It's sprinkling, not immersion. So there's a lot of images of John the Baptist, and some of them are humorous. This one here has a small image, and I wanted to show you this because it's just got a very small piece you can see on this image of his belt, or what the King James would call something else. You'll see it in the King James now because I want to read to you from Matthew chapter 3. This is Matthew's account of what went on with Jesus' baptism. Verse 4 This is in the King James. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. So John the Baptist was a cartoon character. If you haven't figured this out, it's trendy right now that people, it's been trendy for a couple of weeks, uh, people are taking their social media face images and using apps to make them look like cartoon characters. Have you seen that? Well, just so you're aware, most of us 
perceive each other as cartoon characters anyway. Because over time, our personalities, we just become very unique, and each one of us, are, we have something that makes us different than other people. So we're all cartoon characters, really. Well, John the Baptist was kind of an exceptional person. He was very unique. And Scripture is inspired to give us this picture of him. Not only was he unique in the sense that he was a unique speaker, preacher for God, he also was a little different. He's described as wearing a girdle in the King James, and, and it's a leather belt in most other modern translations. And at the time, most didn't do that. Most used ropes and strings and things like that to, if they wanted to tie their garments, not leather. And if leather was used, that would indicate there might be a reason for that, and it probably wasn't because he was trying to hide his fat, which is why others might wear a girdle. He was, could possibly, some people speculate, that he might have something like a hernia. Or it could just be that he liked the leather belt. Whatever the case, it's a description that made him unique. It also tied him to another character. Uh, and also, this I, I should let you dwell on this a little bit. The idea that he was eating locusts and wild honey, that is kind of strange. It's not something normal people do, even not back then. When I, I got a message this week, I'm so excited I get to be a part of Pleasant Valley Christian Camp uh, Junior Week this coming summer. I got, in, I, I got a message from... Uh, one of the guys I work with on a regular basis, and we do this man day where we separate the boys from the girls, and we do man stuff with the boys, and the women do the girl stuff with the girls. And it's kind of special. We do that each year. And I remember one of the years, my, this guy asked me, he goes, hey, if you have any ideas, uh, tell me what we can do for man day. And I said, well, I think we should just tell the boys, you only get to eat what you kill. <laughs> Um, I did that one year, and the boys took me seriously. I said, I'm joking. We have food. We'll bring it in. It's going to be fine. They actually started catching grasshoppers and eating them, okay. just grabbing them and eating them. Then they figured out they taste better if you roast them over the fire. Plus, boys and men like to play with fire, so that was their excuse. But they began eating like locusts. And John the Baptist did this for his regular food. This was his main meal. Look at this. This indicates that he was not a wealthy man. He was poor. If you ever have these questions in your mind, you wonder how God could use you because you have these limitations. Maybe one might be because I'm poor. Maybe one might be because people perceive me as being strange. Well, this is John the Baptist, both of those things. <clears throat> but it, all these descriptions kind of tie him to another biblical character. I don't know if you're aware of this, but if we look in the Old Testament, look at this scripture here. It's also King James, 2 Kings 1.8. And they answered him, he was a hairy man and girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. And he said, it is Elijah, the Tishbite. There is a reason why God inspires things to be in the Bible the way they're there, so that we could make those kinds of connections. 
And we're supposed to, when we think of John the Baptist, we're supposed to be reminded of Elijah. When we are reading about Elijah again, after we've already read about John the Baptist, we're supposed to make that connection. He's a precursor to John the Baptist. And you see this play out throughout the New Testament, actually. And Jesus himself uh, will speak of it in a little bit. But I want to show you Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, I just want to make it simple so we don't have to go through all of it. And you can look it up yourself. But John the Baptist preached, repent, that's change your mind. And he preached, this is the prophecy about him, that God's going to send Elijah. Well, Elijah's dead. But he's going to send, and he was taken up in a, remember, in a, in a whirlwind. But Elijah's gone. And so he's going to send Elijah. This is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is going to turn people's hearts in the direction they're supposed to be going. And that's what he did. He said, change your minds. Now, I don't know about you, but if there was a need in my lifetime for people to redirect their thoughts back in a way that's pleasing to the Lord, especially redirect their thinking to respect and honor your parents. And for parents to love their children enough to raise them properly. This would be a good time, wouldn't you say, today? Okay, so... Maybe it's good that we're reviewing a little bit about the prophecy of John the Baptist and what he did to set the stage for Jesus. He got people prepared for the lordship and messiahship of Jesus by having them repent and turn back to God in their thinking. I want to show you in Matthew chapter 11, starting with verse 11, and then I want to jump to verse 14. Look at what it says. This is Jesus speaking. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And if you are willing to accept it, this is verse 14, he is Elijah who is to come. So they've been hearing God's going to send Elijah from the Malachi prophecy. And Jesus said, it's fulfilled in John the Baptist. And if you can stay humble, you will be greater than he. Now, I have, like I told you, I have a cousin. and I have a list in our 101 class or 1.0 class. I have a list of people who are influencers of me. And I've added a name to that list over the past couple of years. He's my cousin. His name is David Nutt. I come from a family of nuts. I don't know if you knew that, but I sometimes act like one. So it might just play out in front of your eyes sometime. But David is my age. He's a truck driver, and he spends a lot of his time dwelling on the Word of God when he's still. And when he's driving down the road, praying and dwelling on the Word of God that he's got in his head. And I love listening to him because he imparts wisdom to me, and I'm very thankful for that. And he's, he's a truck driver. He's not a deacon. He's not an elder. He's not a Sunday school teacher. 
He's a brother and a father and a son and a truck driver and a cousin to me. And one of the things he's pointed out to me that he keeps on saying is that he's convinced more and more as time goes on that humility is key in Christianity and that if you lack humility, it's what leads to sin. And I think he's imparted wisdom as he's given me that information. If you could be humble, you could be as great as John the Baptist. That's pretty cool. So now I want to go to back to the Gospel of John, the one we're walking through. And I want to give you John 1.14 and following. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. Now you remember we read this before, and that verse 14 is powerful, because it clearly says that the Word, Logos, the very concept or idea, Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. John the Baptist set the stage for it. This is mentioned in this powerful introduction in John. So now, this leads us to our text, John 1, 19. You can read along behind me. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Now, it's an interesting thing because there are cults that will latch on to this because they already have. And when I say cults, you do know that some churches act like cults. Some churches act like they're the only ones that are going to heaven. If you're not part of their church, you're going to hell. That's definitely indicative of a cult. But there are cults today that we don't call cults anymore. As a chaplain for the Department of Corrections, I facilitate all the many different faiths, some of which I would definitely call a cult but I can't to the people that are practicing it. But it used to be that you could pick up a book, go to a Christian bookstore and pick up a book and read about cults, and you would clearly have labeled a bunch of different things now that people are actually lumping in with Christianity. It's weird. So when I say cults, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm talking about what God would call a cult, not what I or you would describe as a cult, but what God would call a cult. There are cults, that latch onto this and say, well, see, Jesus himself said he wasn't the prophet. Guess who the prophet was? Well, it was our prophet. It's my prophet. It's in our book. We write about this prophet. There's a couple of cults that have their prophets, and they believe, they, they want us to believe that, oh, since Jesus said he wasn't the prophet, then it must be Muhammad or Joseph or some other. Now, I have friends in these cults, so don't get me wrong. I love these people, but they're misdirected. And Jesus said, no, I'm not the prophet. This is uh, 
troubling to a lot of people when we read this. It's probably a reference from Deuteronomy 18.15. And here where it's asked the question, are you the prophet? It is likely a reference back to Elijah or a reference to clearly someone other than Jesus because Jesus is not the prophet. Jameson Fawcett Brown is one of those that you might look up and learn that this is definitely not talking about some cult leader and it's definitely not pointing to Jesus. He was giving you the truth. Moving on, verse 22. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And this is from Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 8. Now, previously I mentioned that Jameson Fawcett Brown and other commentaries will tell you this is not talking about Jesus. It's not talking about some cult leader prophet. It is quite possibly talking about Moses, even though Jesus might be a symbolic form of Moses, he's not Moses. So that's why he would say no. The transfiguration might give you an indication that this is what this is talking about. Moving on, verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered then, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So John the Baptist denies that he is the prophet because that's a prophecy more than likely about Moses that transfers into Jesus. He's not that one, but he's the one that's leading people to Christ. It's tempting for people like preachers like me who would spend time trying to dedicate a lot of energy to hopefully having you read your own Bible and get out of it what God wants you to learn. I wouldn't want to spend time trying to teach you that this says something that only you could understand if I tell you what it means. I want you to be drawn to this so that you would open it up and read it and believe it and follow it. But it would be tempting for somebody like me who would stand on a stage in a venue like this where it's typically not okay to speak out and say, preacher, you're wrong, in the middle of it. So it feels like it's almost... It's, it's easy for cult leaders to do this. You can have a person on the stage and people sitting out in chairs or pews or a stadium or whatever. And if nobody says you're wrong, then it feels like everybody's in agreement, even if people aren't. And that kind of a position is a delicate position because people who are standing on the stage could abuse it and mislead people. People that are standing on the stage could lack humility and build up themselves. They could be in a position to lead people down a path that would be wrong. And John the Baptist was given a great stage as he set the stage for Jesus. 
And he refused to take glory. Instead, pointed to Jesus. So that's kind of cool. Now, I want to give you a heads up. In a few weeks, we're going to learn something. You can read ahead. It's right in your Bible, so you don't have to just believe me. Jesus is also, he irritates people because they hear that he's baptizing even more people than John the Baptist. That's right. But then we learn Jesus actually didn't baptize anyone. You'll see. You can read ahead. You can find out for yourself. But let's go ahead and move on in our passage. John 1.29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. This is cool. Now, John the Baptist, it was Jesus' cousin. You can read about that. And he is clearly laying it out for Jesus. Follow him, not me. I'm, he's the one. But even later, John the Baptist has doubts. It's because there was this expectation that a lot of the religious leaders, people who had stood on the stage, they had got it in their head that this king that would come would rescue the people from the Romans, who were so oppressive. I mean, the government was just pushing down the people and controlling people especially those people who had religious beliefs, that's uncomfortable. See, if you start believing these religious beliefs, you might have to think there's accountability for your actions, and we don't need that, right? I mean, that's what they didn't want. And John the Baptist, when Jesus came, and he wasn't taking the position of being a political leader, it appears that John the Baptist struggled himself as he was incarcerated and wondering, what is going on? Let's move on in our text. Verse 32 and following, And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, it's pretty powerful, that whole scene. And you can read about it in Matthew's Gospel. I like Matthew's version of when it takes place. And after Jesus is baptized, John tries to say, no, you should be baptizing me. And Jesus makes a statement, and then he allows John the Baptist to do it. It's a, it's a pretty powerful thing. I wanna, I'll read you that in a moment, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about it. I want to show you Matthew 3, the account of Matthew's, uh, of Jesus' baptism. Verse 13 and following, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? 
But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Isn't that fascinating? That there's only one person that ever walked this planet in New Testament times that didn't need to be baptized, and yet he said it needed to be done. He did it. Jesus went ahead and did it, setting an example for all of us. And it, it, to me, it's, it's a captivating moment in the history of the world because God himself submitted to something to show us how it's supposed to be done. John was preaching a baptism of repentance. Jesus added an element in this discussion about the Holy Spirit, and it's significant. This is the indwelling Holy Spirit. You can talk about multiple things involving the Holy Spirit. You can talk about the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That can happen like when you're in a church service like this while there is a person standing on the stage holding a Bible and preaching from it with the scriptures off the wall. You might read along and you might come in here with things on your mind. You might start thinking things like, I need, I need to straighten some things out. You think that's from you? That's not from you. That's the conviction of the Spirit. You think that's something that I say or do? Well, my words might trigger something, but the conviction is from the Spirit. That's, that's not from me. That's not, that's not from you. That's the Holy Spirit convicting. And there's manifestations of the Holy Spirit. You read about all kinds of wonderful manifestations throughout the New Testament. But this is talking about the indwelling Holy Spirit, which is really cool because Jesus doesn't need this, but he's setting us an example. And God kind of gives his stamp of approval in the way this plays out. Look at the rest of this little section in Matthew 3. We'll pick up with verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. God only did this one other time, and that's at the transfiguration, where he looked upon Jesus and said, This is my Son, and I am so pleased. And if he does it at his baptism, don't fall into this trap. Which is so trendy today to relegate baptism to nothingness. You, just, you don't need to do it. You just, just believe, and that's the end of it. My Bible and your Bible tells us you need to be baptized. In fact, the only person that ever did, didn't need to do it, that ever walked the planet, was Jesus. And when he did it, God said, mm, that's my son. I am so pleased. And the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove, symbolizing what happens at our baptism, Acts 2.38. You can read about it, 1 John 5, if you want to read the connection. And the Spirit came upon Jesus. And that's significant because of what plays out next. You can read along in Matthew and see the events that follow, how he is right after his baptism, the devil goes after him. Right after God says, mm, that's my son, I'm so pleased. Then the devil goes after him. And that's the way it plays out with us too. Because when we get on fire and we're going to do God's will and we want to please the Lord and we know that we've pleased him and we're ready to take on the world, the devil is going to come after you. He's going to try to stop you. He's going to try to prevent that momentum that you've got going. 
But that's the way it works. And then Jesus began his ministry after that. And it's, it's just a wonderful passage. So John the Baptist mentioned in our passage in John that he baptizes with water and Jesus will baptize with the Spirit. And some people like to try to make a distinction, a complete distinction, and separate them all together. But if you notice what happened actually in the moment is both took place with Jesus' baptism. They're both tied together. That's what 1 John 5 says. The water, the blood, and the Spirit are all tied together. They're all in agreement. So that's why Peter in Acts 2.38 says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. There's the cross, the blood takes you to that. And you'll receive the gift of the Spirit. There's the Spirit. And what about the water? Well, he said, repent and be baptized. That's the water. This is the way John begins his inspired scripture. And so I ask the question, so what? I ask that question because a professor, a very wise professor, in my opinion, said that every time you teach a lesson, every time you preach a sermon, you should answer the question, so what? So let's just see. There's four things that I think we need to bring out of what we looked at this morning. First of all, number one, God used John the Baptist to prepare people to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. Don't forget that those two things go together. I mean, we all, at some point in time, you want a Savior. We don't want to be lost. We don't want hell. But not everybody wants a Lord. We don't want to actually, it's not, it's not so like we just run around looking for someone to submit to. I, just, I need to submit to someone. That's what I need in my life. No, we're, we want the Savior, and we're told in Scripture, you don't get the Savior without the Lord. You have to live for Jesus. But God used John the Baptist to, to prepare people to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. Sometimes when you hear a message, a feel-good message that's just designed to make you feel like there's a bounce in your step when you leave the meeting, you hear, accept Jesus. That's all you hear is accept Jesus. You don't hear the Lordship part. We can't leave that out. It's not just a simple thing. It's like, okay, I accept the freeness of everything you're giving to me, Lord, and I take no responsibility for anything else from here forward. That's not the way it works. You're deciding to live for him for the rest of your life. And God used John the Baptist to help people prepare to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. Second, God can use you to prepare people to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. And the way that's going to play out, if you're going to be his instrument to prepare people for that, you have to be a reflection of Jesus. You can't be a reflection of something other than Jesus and say you're a reflection of Jesus. You can't say I'm a Christian and live very differently. Does that mean you have to be perfect? None of us are perfect. We're all going to mess up. And when we mess up, we don't justify it. Uh, do you realize you're going 90 miles an hour in a 50? And you're a Christian, right? Uh, okay, well, that, that was wrong. I should, as a Christian, I set a bad example. I'm sorry. But you know what most of us do? We all do it. It's all right. That's not a Christian answer. That's not a Christian response. You can attach your own struggle that you have with whatever sin. Three, the message from both John the Baptist and Jesus was change your mind. That word, repent, that's what it means. That's why you see it come up behind me. Repent. You will see it come up behind me. There it is. 
Repent. Change your mind. That's what you do, you know, when you're in the middle, when a husband and wife are having a discussion and it gets heated. If you want to be real ineffective, you say, repent. I say ineffective because that's going to cause more sparks to fly. Don't do that. That word's very powerful. Uh, Don't do that. Uh, Kids, don't say that to your parents. Uh, But change your mind is what John the Baptist and Jesus were saying. In fact, if you read in Matthew's account exactly what Jesus did after he began his ministry, from that moment that he began his ministry and forward, he preached, repent, change your mind. That means that he's going to be telling people from that moment forward, you're thinking wrong. That means that if we're going to be like him, we're going to be preaching the same message and we're going to be telling other people, you're thinking wrong. This is not very welcoming in our modern world, you know. We live in a world where we've got big media conglomerates and we've got big government trying to tell us what the facts are, right? Yeah, we do. And it's kind of a a sick thing that many of us Christians just fall lockstep in line with that. Not that we're always going to be misdirected by government and big media conglomerates, but you do know that as Christians, on a regular basis, we, we need to hear, change your mind, you're thinking wrong. Fourth, the message from us should likewise be Change your mind. Repent. Not in the middle of a heated discussion between a husband and wife, or between children and parents, but when we're talking to other people, our message must be, you're thinking wrong. It can't be all the time, oh, you're thinking just, you're thinking exactly right. Just come on in. Now you're a Christian because you said you accept the free gift and you just keep thinking the way you're thinking. No. No, it doesn't work like that. Repent needs to be the message. Now, I'm going to give you a quote. I mentioned Jameson Fawcett Brown didn't even quote them. I'm just going to give you a quote. This is a quote. I wrote it, so if you don't like it, you take it up with me. This is just me. I'm going to give it to you. If you find yourself repeating things you see and hear on screens more than Scripture, you're doing it wrong. If you keep repeating what you see on your favorite cable news channel more than you do scripture, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> let, me, let me explain how I, why I put this quote up here. And by the way, if you're doing that, if you find yourself constantly battling against other Christians, people that you find to be dedicated people who are dedicated to the word of God, they understand the lordship, they live for him. And you constantly are not thinking the same on a subject and you respect their biblical scholarship, it does not hurt you to listen to what they're saying and check it against scripture. It won't hurt you one bit. Anything that you hear on your favorite cable news channel, check it against scripture. Why not? don't be afraid of it. This is the word of God. There's nothing more wise than this. Go with this. If there's anything in conflict with it, go with the word of God. You can't go wrong with that. 
And if you find yourself regularly watching your favorite channel, your favorite cable news channel, and it's in conflict with this, change the channel or turn it off. I recommend turn it off because there's, there's not a cable news channel that only does this quite well that I've found. But where did this come from? This, if you find yourself repeating things you see and hear on screens more than scripture, you're doing it wrong. And that could be social media, your phone, whatever. If you're, if, you're, if you're quoting things or regurgitating things more than you are scripture, you're, you're doing it wrong. My father-in-law, Stephanie's father, Paige's grandfather, Peyton's great-grandfather, so we've got generations in here. One time I was listening to him preach, and he said something that stuck with me, and it's kind of amusing. Stephanie and I were sitting together in his church, and he said... You want to find out who your God is, just look at your checkbook. And this is back in a time when people had checkbooks and they wrote in the ledgers. And I still do that because I'm old school that way. But I opened up my checkbook and I thought, find out who my God is. I opened it up and looked at the ledger and I thought, Walmart? Right? Really? And today, I guess it would be look at your online banking, look at that, and you, and you say, Amazon? And anyway, it was very convicting. I thought, we need to be giving to God more than we do if we've got so many checks going to whatever. But if you find yourself repeating things you see and hear on screens more than Scripture, you're doing it wrong. Let me give you this Scripture. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern What is the will of God? What is good and acceptable and perfect? We've got way too many of us that are getting our information from sources outside of the Bible, and that information is in conflict with the Bible. And we're not only repeating it, which is bad, we're actually agreeing with it. We, We think it. We're letting the world... Give us how to think. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. People of God, this is where we're supposed to get our direction. Too many of us have aligned ourselves with our favorite political party, our favorite cable news channel, our favorite social media, or whoever it is, our favorite personality or celebrity. This should be what we're aligning ourselves with, the will of God. So don't be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's that repent idea. Change your mind. That's what Jesus preached. It's what John the Baptist preached. It's what we need to preach, and it's what we need to live. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for these constant reminders in your word that we don't have it all figured out. We thank you that You've given us a a word that is so living and active and practical. And every time we go through and read it, every time, even though we've done it over and over again, Lord, we find new application. We're always learning how great your wisdom is. And God, we know that if we're going to be a church that has a great impact on our community, we have to be people dedicated to you and what you say in your word. So God, direct us, move us, and help us change our minds to be in line 
with how you want us to think and behave. May you be pleased. In Jesus' name, amen.